gentlemen, boys and girls. My name is Gregory Ball. I am the director of digital strategy and production for Embrace Boston. And you are joining us for our latest episode of Good Trouble. And today I have a good troublemaker uh, of the highest order with me, uh, former director of uh, the Mayor's Office of Public Safety for the city of Boston, a Roxbury native, uh, and somebody who has been, as far as I've known him, and in the time that I've known him, somebody who is a staunch advocate and a lover of the city of Boston, but a lover of um, Boston's Black community, and someone who I'm proud and, and very happy to call a friend of mine. And I'm also very happy to call him by his official title since he has uh, gotten his doctorate a couple years ago. Please join me in welcoming the exalted oh shoot sat words already I love you know what i'm saying listen i i gotta use my latin school words over here <laughs> the exalted uh dr rufus jackson there Falk. you go there you go. gotta can't leave off the jackson thank you thank you my brother Appreciate thanks for joining me today man how you feeling i'm feeling good man summer day about to be 95 today but it's all right make oh it. yeah listen as long as there's air conditioning I'm, I'm going to survive, man. I'm going to survive. Well, listen, I wanted to talk to you, and I was super excited about the, the prospect of having you come on um, and have a conversation with me, because one, I do know your history in terms of the city, in terms of the work that you've been doing, and I know that, you know, we're, we're going to talk about one of your latest achievements, but I want to start from the beginning, man. You know, I know you grew up in, in Roxbury, and you know, you are a proud graduate of Temple University. Absolutely. You know, down in Philadelphia. But tell me about growing up in Roxbury. You, you're over by Humboldt, right? So, first of all, when we say Roxbury, we like to refer to it as God's country. So I, I, have, <laughs> I have the pleasure of being being born and raised in, in God's country. But um, we I started in, in Eggleston Square. So okay. right on Cleve Street, right off Columbus right where the elevator rails used to be. Um, that's that, that, that's where my parents started. I, that was their first apartment. And then from there, we moved to St. James Street, which is right off of Warren. Then we moved off of Highland Street. And then I moved on Humboldt. And I just recently bought a house literally right around the corner from the house I grew up in where my parents still live at. So I, I lived in the same about eight block radius my entire 41 years of life, man. So Roxbury is is not only near and dear to my heart, like that's that that's where my foundation was laid and that's where some of my greatest life lessons were taught, man. So I I, I owe Roxbury a lot. And that's why I try to do my best to give back to it. So what what is it about, you know, I think that every neighborhood in the city has a different personality and a different energy. What is it about Roxbury that that, you know, most people you hear in, in Boston, they're trying to get away from Boston. I should say in terms of Black Bostonians, yeah. many times you hear people with the idea of fleeing the city or going to something that's better. Why is it that someone like yourself that's talented and, and quite essentially has options decided to be so connected and rooted to the community? So that's a great question. Um, so what, what I would say is that I often describe it growing up in Roxbury as dope but dangerous. Um, some of my fondest memories were laid in Roxbury, but also some of the most traumatic incidents I've ever experienced were also happened in Roxbury. So I, I understand why the narrative was for, if you finally make it, go to Randolph, go to Stoughton, 
move out of the city, in particular, move out of Roxbury. But as we as go to Atlanta, exactly. But I, but I, as we've seen, Roxbury, in terms of the narrative, is like that's it's one of the hottest, if not the, is one of the hottest neighborhoods in the city for people who try to move into because they recognize how central we are to the city. You can get to downtown in 10 minutes on a 10 minute train ride. You can hop on the expressway at five minutes. You get to the airport at 10 minutes. We're in the middle of everything. And I think as a kid, that's what I felt like. I felt like my neighborhood was the center of the universe. I felt like if I wanted to go out on a Sunday, I could spend all day at Malcolm X Park and watch basketball games all day and the whole city would be there. If I wanted to go play basketball, if I wanted to go to a, um, go to the library, like whatever I wanted or whatever I needed, I could find in my neighbors. That's why I had such an affinity for it. But I think as the, the narrative got out there, in order to succeed, it was that you had to leave Boston. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to change that. Also trying to push the city to say that we have to value the products of our own institution. And I don't think we've done a good enough job at doing that. Yeah, and I, I know for you, you know, you grew up, you grew up in Roxbury and then you, as you got to be a little bit of an older, older you went um went off to temple but before you got to temple it was looking a little rough there for a minute oh that's for, yeah oh for, yeah for you so what how do you kind of navigate because you you grew up in a time when it was you know they were having like an ongoing count of the people that were dying in the city on yeah. the front page of the newspaper like in in Roxbury at that time was kind of the epicenter of some of that energy like how was it navigating for you as a young man during those times? Um, so I had to navigate the sort of the surrounding neighborhoods of what Roxbury was in terms of what the streets were, but also I had to try to navigate just, just academically, like the, the school setting. So I was I started off as one of those kids who was who was in the 99 percentile, meaning I, I tested well, so I tested above my grade level. So I was already viewed as a quote unquote uh, a gifted student just by my test scores, but you talked about that's 1991 at a time where the city had 100 plus murders. So mm -hmm. even if you were a kid, say if you were a kid who was brilliant, we already knew there were kids who were brilliant, but who just didn't might who might not have tested well, or who might have heard gunshots the night before and didn't get a chance to go to sleep, or might have lost a loved one the day before the test and bombed that test. And that one test was was, was one of the reasons that that sort of determined what schools you're going to be able to get into, and and. For me, it was like it was it was precarious because every street felt like it was a it was a gang neighborhood, and I had to walk because I always lived too close to get a school bus because that was the rule back then. If you lived within a certain mileage, you couldn't get a school bus. So you had to use public transportation before they changed the rules where they gave they put every kid on the MBTA. But I'm I'm walking from Highland to go to the King Middle School on Lawrence Ave at a time when I'm crossing between between. 10 gangs. So it, it forced me to get a level of street smarts early where you knew what to do, what not to do. If somebody said, yo, where you from? Either you're going to stand and fight and say where you from, or you're going to have to bust a move. Um, so it was just, it was just a, le a level of lessons that, that you had to learn in order to be able to survive all while trying to be just a regular kid having fun, trying to study for math tests. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, it was very difficult. And oftentimes it felt like the people, the adults, and the institutions either A, didn't care, or just B, were just unaware of what students had to go through in that late 80s, early 90s to even try to be somewhat of a, of a studious young person. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was tough. Yeah, you, and it was, it was, you brought up something that I think a lot of people that, unless you were in the city during that era, during that time, you know, 
I'm on the older spectrum of that same of that same era where unlike other other um cities around the country, you know, you could have three gangs that are at war in within literal blocks of each other. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. like it'd be like this street against this street, yeah. as opposed to, you know, where in some cities it would be like all of Roxbury against all of Mattapan. Yeah. Where but here you could go, you know, a five minute car ride and pass through three in three different or four different sets. Yeah. You know what I mean? That that was the era when everybody was wearing a different hat for their neighborhood. That's so you and don't mess around and, and get a hat that matches your sneakers, thinking you fresh and you yeah. walk in you walk in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah. but like again, yeah, that that speaks to what the what the lessons were. And our parents weren't aware of that. You know what I'm saying our parents weren't aware of what it was like to lead a house and say, okay, I live over here. Even if I'm not active, I still live over here. And yeah. the perception is that I'm from this neighborhood over here. So having to navigate that was tough, man. And to, to your point, like there wasn't no, no gang had like a seven block radius where they controlled. No, you controlled your street or you try to control your project and you beef them with the next project or the next street right on over. So imagine being a 12-year-old kid, 11-year-old kid trying to navigate that space when it feels like, okay, either you're going to be a victim or you're going to do whatever you can do to protect yourself, which is why so many, I know of our friends and my friends um, got themselves caught up in a lot of stuff just simply because out of fear that they didn't want to be a victim. Yeah, and that and that is the that is the trauma that I think that even beyond that, being a young person that informs people's decisions and their energy even to this day. Growing up in that time was was just very, very difficult. And I don't think people really understand what it's like to grow up in a space where you're either fearful of other people your age, you're fearful of adults, you're fearful of the police. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're you're constantly in this epicenter of fear and you're you're fearful of a variety of things. Some some of the kids you're afraid of your age, you're afraid that they're gonna hurt you. You're afraid of the perception that you might get hurt, like you know, that you don't want to be seen as like you said, seen as a victim. Yeah. So even if even if you ain't this, even if you're not necessarily running around and, and being connected to, to the activity, you still don't want to be seen as soft, you still want to be respected. And how do you maintain that and independence? Yeah. Those, those are all different difficult things to navigate. But for you, you 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 got through your time as a as a young man here in the city and you made it down to Temple. How how did you, what made you choose Temple and how did you how did your journey take you to Temple? So I I didn't really get my academics in order until 10th grade. So I was a good student from first to say fourth or fifth grade. Um, but then after that, I was just too busy doing everything else. I was too busy wanting to be the funny kid, wanted to be the cool kid, wanted to be the kid with the best clothes, wanted to be the kid who had the best jokes. So I was more focused on the social aspect of it. And lucky enough, I was able to, I was smart enough that I could get away with having bad study habits. You know what I'm saying? So um, I just wasn't, I just wasn't a good student. I'm just somebody that has some, some natural ability. But by the time I got to, I got the Latin Academy in seventh grade, eighth grade. By the time I got to ninth grade, I was already failing. GPA was below a two. I was probably about like a 1.3 at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, they said, yo, you're either going to get, 
you can you can stay here and get kept back, or they can kick you out. I said once they once they gave me those options, I said yo, I gotta find me another way, man. Find me another option, man. So I ended up running into one of our brothers, our good friends, uh, Russ, who was going to this Catholic high school in um, Cambridge, and um, connected me to an organization that he was a part of that helped to pay some of the tuition if you played athletics. And I lucky enough, I had a good little jump shot and I could jump at the time. So I was able to go to North Cambridge Catholic and that changed everything for me. That That's really where um, I the, the sort of switch sort of clicked on for me. It was like, yo, what like what type of life do I want to live? I, I had got arrested that summer. I was I was doing a lot of stuff that summer, my ninth grade year that, um, and I, and I, and I realized like, yo, bro, I, had, I had really had no excuse to be throwing my life away or living a life I was I was I was living and mm -hmm. uh, I was lucky enough to have an opportunity to to write the ship so I ended, ended up going to Temple for my sophomore junior senior year played ball got my GPA up to like a 3.3 I had always had my by the time I was right to go to school I wanted to go to a black college because the different world was my favorite show so I just said yeah I'm going to Hampton but I went on a tour they had too many rules Talking about no freshman, no no co-ed dorms, can't have no car, you got a curfew. I'm like, these are more rules than I got at home. <laughs> <laughs> but then I ended up going on a college tour and I visited Temple and um, fell in love, man. North Philly, my grandmother, my, my, my nana, my nana's from North Philadelphia. North Philly felt like a bigger, blacker version of Boston. When I went on campus, I saw dudes who looked just like me. They had chains on, they were wearing Averexes, but they were college students. And I just knew like, yeah, this is where I need to be at, so. I went on a visit and then um I said, yeah, this is where I need to go, man. So yeah, that was that was it, man. Once I once I went on a visit and um I fell in love with the city, yo. Cause I I, I visited the city before, but never like really as a, a free adult, you know what I'm saying? So having an opportunity to see the city, it just felt like home, man. Some of the same streets um that we have, they have there, the way it's laid out and like the culture of Philly just felt like it felt like home. So and what what year was that? Around what time was that? So, so I graduated high school in 2000. So that was that was 2000. The summer of 2000 was my freshman year. So you got to think about it, that's right at the heart when Philly's music getting back popping again. I was so, just about to ask that. I was like, they're they're right in the in the epicenter of like pop culture at the same time. Yeah. That's state property. That's Benny Siegel. Yeah. That's major figures. That you know what I mean. Philly's that's the Rockefeller that's influence right coming down from New York. Dipset. You know. That's Eve. That's all of them. That's um. That's everything at the time. That's I was there the last year, the Greek Fest. I was there when um they had the All Star. Uh, the All Star game was in Philly. Um, mm. it was just a, it, it it was like like they were shooting videos in the middle. Like so that the music soul child's love video. They they went on my my campus and did recruiting for Temple students to be in the videos. Like we were in the middle. Cassidy was used to freestyle battle in our cafeteria with local dudes in the, in the neighborhood. It was like it was crazy. It was good, but I, also at that time it's like Philly was what still was one of the, one of the most dangerous cities in America at that time. You know what I'm saying? So you go, yeah. you, you leave in Roxbury to go to North Philadelphia. To be on an institute of uh, institution of higher learning, and, and I and I felt myself having to wear the same sort of ski mask that I was wearing in Roxbury, just in order to be able to navigate North Philadelphia as well. Because the first week I was there, a kid got shot literally on our on our campus dorm. Because my campus dormitory was right on Broad Street, which would be akin to having a dorm on Blue Hill Avenue in in Boston. So Broad Street's the main street in in North Philadelphia, in mm -hmm. Philadelphia, and my 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 dorm was right there. And the first week. A kid got shot on the steps. He ended up surviving, but, and of course I didn't tell my parents. They'd be like, yo, I didn't send you down here for that. 
but it's like that that was sort of the switch like yo even though i'm in college i still have to carry that same type of healthy paranoia that allowed me to, to live in roxbury i'm gonna have to bring that to philadelphia with me which caused some issues for me too over there but it was a way, a way in which i could survive man it was tough yeah but i I'm, I'm just imagining kind of navigating all this you survive you survive the whole situation here only to be confronted with the same problems in, in a foreign land where you yeah. don't know the lay of the land or the people is the same way. Part of being able to survive Roxbury is just knowing the players and who's doing what and where to go. Like like I, we talked about the whole thing about about what hat to wear. You yeah. know what I mean? But when you start when you drop into Philadelphia, you don't know any of their rules. Yeah. You know what I mean, you learning all that stuff on the fly. Yes, yeah, so, but luckily enough, Roxbury was a was a good because it, you had to learn so quickly, you have to adapt. Um, those sort of same skill set allowed me to learn Philadelphia very quickly. Like I knew, for one, one thing, I knew was like I was I was not going to look like an out of town. I wasn't going to look like a, a college student when I'm walking around North Philadelphia. Like you don't want to be again back to this idea of like you don't want to be a victim. So I'm like I'm I'm Dicky suit down. I'm 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 I'm, I'm Mitchell and Ness down. My beard <laughs> growing in. Um, dudes is driving Park Avenues and Bonnevilles, and you just find yourself, okay, I'm still Roxbury, I'm still Boston, but at the end of the day, you're you're playing an away game. So you got to make sure that you can um you can fit in and 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 not be not sort of stick out to bring extra attention to yourself, all while trying to be a student at <laughs> in, in, in Pennsylvania's uh, premier sort of sort of public public college. So um, yeah, it was tough, man. I like the, the, the tough part was that like, I had to do a lot of recollection, like, and sort of, sort of, sort of sit, sitting with things when I got older, you know, when I talked to some, some kids I went to school with, went to college with in, in particular, like the, the women, they were like, used to walk around looking so mad all the time. So mean all the time. And I never realized I was actually doing that. Like I was, I would have like a permanent screw face all the time, just so to be as a sort of defense mechanism, like, yo, don't think it's sweet. I'm not the one, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm doing this on a college campus. And I had to think about it, like, yo, I was really wearing that mask out of survival for, I probably still do it from time to time, but now I'm more conscious of it now. But like, I, like the environment which, which you grow up in, it sort of forces you to sort of put on these airs in order to, to not be someone who could be taken advantage of. And, you don't realize what that does to your mentality or how traumatized it shows. I, I tell people all the time, like whenever, whenever folks start saying, oh, it's a nice day, they're concerned about it. Like that's trauma right there. Like the fact that we can't enjoy hot weather, nice weather for fear that somebody's gonna get shot or somebody's gonna be harmed. Like that's the trauma that goes into going up in the inner city. And we have to be honest about articulating how that impacts the way in which we interact with each other, but also what, what, what it does to you personally. Yeah, I mean, and you're absolutely right. And it is something that we just all carry. And it, and it just, it is something that I don't think we're anywhere near as, as aware of and kind of our ongoing moves. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to hear you tell the story about Temple inside your TED Talk. So folks, one of the things that was great about, um, about uh, Dr. Dr. Falk or one of the things that is great about Dr. Falk is that he's recently um, been one of the speakers at the first TED Talks that was he held here in uh, Roxbury. 
And it was incredible conversation where he basically explained something that I think of, is of the utmost importance. And he the talk is entitled, I'm from Bobby Brown, Boston. Mm-hmm. And I think that people don't realize that the that whole piece of where what kind what part of the city you're from and why it was so important and the thing that I think really kind of spoke to me about your conversation um or your 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 speech was the idea of cultural representation is kind of that gateway of people understanding who we are because we talked like for example we talked about Philadelphia we have an energy we have an understanding and an energy about Philadelphia through pop culture, like you said, music, soul child, state property, yeah. like d- even Daryl Hall, Daryl Hall and John Oates, like we have an understanding of what Philadelphia is through through pop culture. In your in your in your TED talk, you spoke about how your first kind of interact, one of your first interactions on campus was somebody who was like, "Are there black people in Boston?" And it was just illuminating to me to see that that that's something that we all have gone through at one point. Yeah. 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 That was, and it was, it was, it was, it was shocking to me because in my eyes, I'm like, yo, it doesn't, it doesn't get black in Roxbury. In my, in my head, I'm like, yo, what, like black people. Yeah, of course. Where, where, where you think I came from? So, and so the, the, the whole idea, like the whole premise around the, the sort of Ted talk was that this idea that, that there is no black culture in the city of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you mentioned you mentioned Beanie Siegel, you mentioned some of these other Philadelphia artists, like they are deeply connected or viewed as being representations of the city. Our our same pop influences, in particular, no, specifically the black pop influences, it's almost like there's been an intentional campaign to dis- to, to sort of disconnect them from the city of Boston. So there is nothing sort of overtly Boston around Donna Summer's music. But those of us who live here directly connect her to the city of Boston. But you go outside of the city of Boston, nobody even associates her with the neighborhood of Mission Hill, which you, which you grew up in. Because Boston's image has always been about Celtics, white Irish, Bulger. It has done everything in its power to promote whiteness and done everything to sort of sweep underneath the rug the black experience or Boston's black experience. So like the point, the point of my talk was to say that that black Boston didn't happen, or black Bostonians didn't happen by happenstance. No, we we have been integrated and intertwined with the city, impacting the world, impacting culture for hundreds of years. And I'm tired of I go on Instagram, I see these fake Instagram pages with these white people with these accents of these exaggerated accents from the South Shore as if they're the representation of the city of Boston. I got I I had somebody online try to tell me that that our former mayor, one of my, my one of my good friends, Marty Walsh, he has the Boston accent. Marty Walsh is a first generation immigrant. His parents were born in Ireland. He was the first person in his family born in Boston, yet he is supposed to be the representation of a Boston accent. But my family's been here since 1898. And somehow the, 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 the narrative, is, the perception is that we are the other. So I am trying to not only destroy the other narrative, I also want us Black Bostonians who are from here to be more intentional about telling our story and saying that 
we are the ones who are the arbiters of culture here. We are the ones who created the history here. And then we need to be the ones who are speaking for ourselves and can't rely on anybody else to tell our stories. I, I agree with you so much. And that's really kind of the cultural representation work that that we do at Embrace Boston. That was, you know, that was the that was the driving force behind behind the um, 1965 Freedom Plaza that sits at the at the base of the the embrace was to lift up the heroes that are from here. Yeah. And you know, for me, I will say that in in all my time in Embrace Boston, I think the one thing that I'm probably the the proudest of, or that made me feel the best, two things. It was um, having Just Blaze come to uh, to Roxbury Community College and do uh, do a DJ set for. Right in the neighborhood, but the other thing that I just felt like, okay, this is why we're doing this more than just Blaze coming coming to coming around away was the fact that we were able to do the Freedom Plaza and that the people yeah. were still alive and able to see their names and and you know to see Has Jose Maso Senior to see you know um, to see uh, Mel Miller or. G. McGuire, Dr. G. McGuire, and for them to see their names on that plaza yeah. and, and the joy, you know, Sarah and Shaw, um, Shaw, like just to see the joy that they felt and the pride in their families just kind of just circling them with love. Like that was like, okay, that was that's that made all the work worth it. Absolutely. Like, to let them know that they that they're appreciated. But it was interesting. One of the things you said, and you, you mentioned it was about when we were talking about the pop cultural representation um, and the the feeling of the, of the erasure. But I would wonder if part of that erasure comes from not only who's telling the stories, but also the activities of, of those people. Like, you know, we talk about Philadelphia and those, you know, folks are kind of constantly pouring back into it. You have the Roots Picnic, you have you have people who are kind of pouring back into it. I think, you know, with the folks that we've had that have been successful, one, I think is the personality of the city that we're kind of, we're not the braggadocious, jump in your face, flashiness of New York, or, you know what I mean? We're, that's just not us. It's, we're, we're the blue collar, work hard. That's, that's why the sports teams that we have, yeah, we've never had, like Michael Jordan probably wouldn't have worked here. It was too much. But Larry Bird, on the other hand, is basic fundamentals, get the job done. Yeah. Play the background type thing. I wonder, and I wonder sometimes, in addition to who's telling the stories, if the people by their personality, like New Edition and those guys, you know, they didn't, they weren't necessarily that super kind of flashy. They would come back and they, you know, they would occasionally do stuff in the hood or whatever, but they would they weren't like making it a big thing and they they didn't necessarily even necessarily have the infrastructure to elevate everything that they were doing sometimes. I would I would argue that I I, I get that point, but I, I, I would argue that the the reason for that sort of disconnect was because the city was never by the city I mean the white power structure at the time mm -hmm. was not open to celebrating blackness within the city of Boston. So even if you were somebody of stature, there were there weren't any mechanisms or platform for you to sort of build 
some of those bridges or create some of those opportunities for 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 other community folks. Like I, I think the biggest thing we had as a kid when I was growing up was either either the kite festival or was or was WIOD's family fun day. Yes, that, that never felt like it was a city of Boston government sponsored thing. It felt no. like it was a they sort of let they sort of let it happen because they figured that they could do nothing to stop it. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like it was it was branded, it was supported by the powers that be. I think now the city is in a place, the city of Boston is in a place where they are celebrating some of those successes that we have in a way in which has never happened, at least in my lifetime, where you can have somebody who's local have a concert down in front of city hall and it, it it wouldn't be it wouldn't seem weird you know what i'm saying it wouldn't seem like oh this like this is so groundbreaking. this would seem like this is almost normal now you look at some even, even the fact that we have so many different black owned restaurants and spaces now like this this is this is a time in which i was talking to one of one of the old heads like yo this is this is this reminds him what it was like to be here in the 60s where there were so many black owned spaces so i just think i just think there's, there's been there's been a sort of intentional effort to sort of downplay Boston's black population. And as a black population, we have gone along with it to the point where we don't even we don't even talk about or support our successes even enough, yo. It's like my brother Topic Rule, the guy's from Roxbury. Like Eddie, you can't you can't find somebody who hasn't watched one episode of Martin, yo, who's seen the credits, seen his name, and didn't make any connection to the fact that his brother grew up in Roxbury, yo. Well, even some- beyond even beyond top of Carew, yeah, like, there's a list of people. List you of know, it. It's not just Martin. It's a bunch of TV shows that he was a, an essential That's part right. of. And there's a, you know, there's Michael Beach, who's who was everybody in Soul Food. Roxbury's own man. You know, Roxbury and he's Kate Birdie, man. So you already know what that, what that ended up being like, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I think that I wonder, like I said, I think I think that it is. It definitely is. We're, I think we're definitely in a, a unique time, but I also I also kind of caution myself not to say or hello. No, I'm here. Okay, I had to get my <laughs> charge. I had to get my charge. I'm here though. Okay, no problem. Oh, um, I, I also caution us not to in, to be careful not to engage in a hyperbole of oh this has never happened before. I think that sometimes we that's where we do ourselves a disservice. Of not being able to, um, of not being able to remember the people that have come before us, and that and it always puts us in a situation where we're rebuilding something as opposed to building on something. No, that's one hundred percent right. Because when you when, when you say it's never happened before, that means you just haven't done the history. And more often and, than not, you're right. And, and 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 to your point, it always feels like each generation <laughs> to start from zero because we aren't able to build upon the foundations that have been laid before us. So I, I, I think for, for just in particular for the black community in Boston, we have to do a lot of work to mend some of the intergenerational divides that exist. And it's, it's not just intergenerational, like we have a bunch of divides that we, we fail to speak on, which end up doing, a, doing us a disservice. So we have, we have if you went through a PWI versus if you went to HBCU. We have mm-hmm. one here versus if you're a transplant. 
We have, if depending on what church you go to, like we have so many, oh, depending on what language you speak. Oh, you speak Caribbean Creole or you speak English. You speak, or did you come from the Caribbean? Did you come from the continent? Like we have so, we, 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 we have so many unspoken divides that cause us to feel like, um, A, we're all in this by ourselves and there's no sort of real collective, but B, that to your point, like we, 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 we talk in our purple, like, yo, this has never happened before. Um, I, I think if we get to that point, we can have real conversations sort of, at least again, we're not gonna be, it's not gonna be all kumbaya, but at least we can sort of get some of the, some of the sort of self-inflicted trauma that, we, that we've done to one another. I, I was having a conversation with one of my Haitian homies. It was like, yo, it, 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 there was an intentional effort to have a divide between black Americans and the, and, 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 and the country of Haiti mm -hmm. in particular, for when it came to the 80s as kids, imagine the strength and pride that Black Americans could have felt in learning the history of Haiti. Being aware of their revolutionary spirit, what they did to even, their effort, how it even helped to create this country, um, the language, the culture. Um, instead, we were taught that they were different. We 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 didn't accept them mm -hmm. into the family, and it was also it was inverse too. Because I they 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 told me stories of their parents saying, "Don't hang around Black Americans because they're lazy, because there's this." Not knowing that it was Black Americans fight in 1965, which even changed immigration laws that allowed the Caribbean influx and the and the and the and influx from folks in the continent to get to America. So like there was a lot of misinformation, but there needs to be some healing. In that regard, I think that that'll help us get to a different point too. I, I agree. We um so at the Boston Foundation with Boston Indicators and Embrace Boston put out a report um a few months ago that that analyzed and kind of broke down the, the 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 demographics and just information about the Boston area black community. And you know, through that report, we found that the black community here in Boston, and this is the hard work of those guys over at, uh, guys and girls over at uh, Boston Indicators, that team is incredible, um, that Boston has the most diverse black population in the city of Boston. I mean, the city uh, in the country. Yeah. And what's amazing to me, it kind of speaks to what you were talking about. You know, my experiences as growing up here in Boston is, you know, I learned the superpowers of all different types of black people. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, one of my best friends when I was in, in in high school was Haitian. So I'm going over his house eating, eating, you know, food was definitely the gateway to get me to, to rock with your country. You Jamaican, I came over your house and got some oxtails. You know what, these Jamaicans is all right. You know what I'm saying? Let me hang out with them over here. But what, I'm going over to the, over to what you call it, get this rice from the, from the Haitians? Oh man, I'm rocking with y'all. But I also, but I think that you're right. It's the, it's it's an amazing. If we looked at each other as resources as opposed to opponents, mm -hmm. I think we would be well off because I think everybody can learn something from everyone. I think you're you're right. There is this kind of the, this thought process that the Americans are this, the the Haitians are that, the Cape Verdeans are this, like, and. And you're right. I I've heard those same things where where I've had friends of mine from the Caribbean who shoot some of their parents when they find out I was American, they was either surprised or like, you know what I mean? Just, oh, really? 
You know what yeah. I mean? So it's the whole idea that we could all be together and connect with each other. But I think more than ever, you're starting to see people who are, are I won't say more than ever. I think you're seeing now we're being very vocal about pushing back against that narrative. So that's why you can go to, to Silk with, where Real P is being looked at as a curator of culture here in the city of Boston, which, you know, I'm, I'm super excited for somebody like Rob with Rob. Roxbury kid. Don't forget that part. Forget What'd you say? Part. Don't forget the fact that he's also from Roxbury. Those don't vote. <laughs> oh, here we go, dog. Here we go. In the middle, so, in the middle of a conversation about unifying. There you go. <laughs> exactly. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me also let you know that Dr. Falk and I have an ongoing, like most people from Dorchester and Roxbury, we have an ongoing good nature. I will say that good natured rivalry that we're always going back. So as, as much as he's proud about being a uh, being a from Roxbury, you know, I I choose not to frequently correct him in his assertion that Roxbury is the best section of the city and, and let him know that Dorchester is, you know, it's, it's the biggest, it's the most diverse. All right, all right, all right, all right, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Let's talk right, about here that. Here we go. And we, we also need to talk about little sections of Roxbury that are really Dorchester, but y'all don't, you know, oh, no. we're trying to claim. So, so, if we're going to be historical, we're going to be, we're going to be correct. <laughs> if you look at the effort that was started in the 19, early 1990s, the, the effort was to shrink the impact and strength of Roxbury because it was the black Mecca and everybody knew that. So what they did was Thomas Fennerin, what he did was illegally began redistricting and reshaping what the lines were for Roxbury. If you look at the 1990 map versus what the map looks like in 2023, you'll see Roxbury was cut in half and they allowed Dorchester to expand because at that time, Roxbury was the main primary black voting base. So what they did was they wanted to expand your neighborhood to try to expand the uh, powers of the establishment. So you were a part of the establishment. Oh, here we go. Oh, this guy. <laughs> go look at the 1990 map. Columbia Road was the border when I was a kid. That, then they made it Blue Hill Ave. The Kite Festival was in Roxbury when I was a kid, but now they they, they gave it to... Uh, it's basically now it's it, it, it consider it Jamaica Plain and Dorchester now by the sort of some of these some of these maps today. But I go by the map when I was a kid. I don't go by these uh, fake oppressors maps. But you can oh, here you we can go. listen. <laughs> listen. Let Let's be clear. If you want to eat well, come to Dorchester. If you want to, if you want a house with a backyard, come to Dorchester. House with a backyard. What do you think Roxbury has? Houses with backyards. There's three of them over there. All I see is brownstones and buildings and unhappy people. That's why y'all got to go to Washington Park, because y'all got no space in your house. That's because we have green spaces that allow us. We know that half of, <laughs> see, I don't know if I can say this, but half of Dorchester used to be whites only, fam. So I don't even know what we were talking about. Here we go. All right, man, let's move on. But I don't even want get, to get started with you today. So... <laughs> You're we, we we're talking about kind of that whole idea of the the Boston that you grew up in, and you know you were you you left Temple. We're talking about your Temple experience. You know you had a, a you know your minor was in or I'm sorry your major was in, in business administration if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was um, history. I had a history. I started off as a school of business, um, but then uh, 
uh, statistics ran me out of that. So I ended up just getting my minor in, in business administration. I got my major and I ended up being a history major. So that's where I really started to learn history of Brazil, history of Haiti, um, mm. learn about, I had a European history class and one of the projects was to find a, a, a artist to do a, um, do a story on. Of course, I chose the only black person I could find was Alexander Pushkin, uh, the, the Russian, the Russian prose writer. It's like who be a, he would be akin to like Dickens in America, you know, or Dickens in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, those sort of taking those history classes really sort of broadened me out. And I graduated in 05. I was gonna stay in Philly. Um, but during that time, city of Boston had to get like the, the violence numbers were down. When I left, they started to pick back up towards the mid, mid 2000, 2004, 2005. And um, I felt uh uh, a need or a duty, I should say, to come back and try to do something, help, mentor, support, um, because I know that so, so somebody helped me, so I knew I had to go back and try to help somebody else. So I, I moved back to Boston in, um, it was July of 2005, so it's been, eight, it's been 18 years since I've been back. And, um, Everything I tried to do was to try to make sure that there were as much opportunities and support and resources for the people who live within our neighborhoods and communities who have been disconnected from those services and resources and support. Yeah, you were really rooted. In, you could have easily gone into um, into the business world and kind of went in that direction, but you went into into the world of service. You know, you worked in Department of Corrections for a little bit. You worked with the City of Boston. Like, what? That sense of duty. Speak to speak to me about that. Where did that come from? Was that something that was familial? Like I, you know, was it was it something that was was there a particular person that kind of that spoke that into you? Because we, you know, on our, on our show we always talk about, you know, we call our our guests good troublemakers. You know, be, behind the the saying from John Lewis, and we were like, what is what for you? What was the spark of you kind of getting into good trouble? It it, it definitely was family. Um, I think family, my family is, is, is who made me comfortable with sacrifice mm-hmm. um, and, and feeling like it, it's okay to sacrifice today in order f- to provide for tomorrow. So I saw that my, again, my parents were teenagers when they had me, I, I saw them sacrifice and I saw them also be sort of examples within the neighborhood. And then I was somebody who grew up within our institutions. So I was in our schools, I was in our community centers and there were people who weren't being paid a lot of money who were there to pour into kids. And um, you don't recognize it when you are a kid, but as you get older, you recognize the sacrifices that they made as well. Um, and then again, just, be, just being a student of history and just reading stories and reading, reading these, sort of, these sort of narratives and, 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 and accounts from folks who were willing to sacrifice themselves for the betterment of their people. And most of the time, not even living to see the fruits of that labor and seeing how brave they were, um, I knew that I wanted to be somebody who made the world better than the world I came into, or at least impacted somebody who was gonna impact the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I wanted to do that. And also knew like my neighborhood, there weren't a lot of tangible examples of kids who grew up in and around Roxbury and around Humboldt who were college graduates who came back 
to work with young people and work with kids so they can see that there, there's another way. Um, especially in my generation, my, my generation was sort of taught if you go to go to school, the next thing you do is try to get it in terms of financially, however you can. So you're going to work these jobs. You're not going to sort of, because you were the only one, like you were the only one in your friend group that went to college. So you can't afford to go into human services and try to help people. No, you got to try to get it right for yourself. So I, I, I wanted to, I just wanted to have an impact, bro. I wanted, I wanted to make sure my neighborhood, um, could begin to improve, man. And we can begin to sort of treat each other better than what, in the way in which we were treating each other. But that desire to, to make an impact brought you all the way into the, into the Walsh administration. And then, you know, for a short time in the Wu administration and, and kind of being within the hall, the, the space of city hall, what is, what do you think about the future of the city? In, in terms of the impact for for um for for the black community and this the city as a whole. I know that, you know, obviously we have the, the Office of Black Male Advancement, which is run by um Frank Farrell, um, and just a lot of good people that are in spaces, you know, the the current administration, or just in general, what do you think about the future of the city of Boston with some of the things that you change that you see changing? I I'll start by saying that I am excited for what the future holds, but I'm also I'm also concerned that we are leaving even more people behind. How so? Because they don't have the requisite skill set to compete with this ever-changing economy and how fast technology is spreading and innovating in spaces that were once held by uh, humans and individuals. You know what I'm saying? The, the, the advent of AI, the sort of ways in which that um, the sort of the tech space is innovating. And if we still have large swaths of our population reading below grade level, how are we expecting them to be able to compete in a world that's going to require even more technological skills and literacy skills? Um, and, and, and in particular, in a way in which where we're not investing enough in the vote tech space for kids who aren't going to become the next generation of lawyers and other specialized sort of graduate degrees. We, we haven't invested enough in that vote tech space where folks can even earn a wage that's gonna allow them to even afford to live in this city. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, how do you juggle optimism, but also seeing the realities of what our black population is experiencing and going through and sort of the lack of skills that we have and the question I keep coming back to is that the expectation, just because we know the history of this country, the expectation can't be that the system that has for 400 plus years done everything in its power to harm, kill <laughs> black and brown people to then prepare them to succeed. What do we do as a community to make sure that we are armoring ourselves with the skills that we can begin to compete and compete in the way in which where we can begin to win, not just a few of us, but the but the masses of us. So I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but um, 
just think about the advancements we, we've made in the last five years are arguably better or greater than what we made in, and if you compare that to the last 30 years, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, what are we doing to make sure like this generation of 10 year olds can actually compete eight years from now and figure out, okay, if college is, if, if, if college isn't going to be my path, I know that I need to have some type of specialized skill set that will allow me to compete and to thrive, not just survive within the city of Boston. So again, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities. We just have to make sure that we are um, doing enough to educate and, 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 and build our skill set so we can take advantage of some of these advancements that are happening. Well, I mean, I know you are uniquely positioned as somebody who has not only done the, the work in terms of the academic work and kind of the, the work experience that you, you kind of know how, I guess for lack of a better word, how the machine works, but you also are connected and rooted in the community that these things are kind of enacted in. What do you think are some of the, where do you think the first bit of attention should be paid to? Like, you know, where do, is it, is it educational policy? Is it, you know, do we need to try to figure out how to inspire more black businesses? And then from those businesses, try to inspire, you know, charitable giving into these space. Like I, what is the pathway? Cause you, I think one of the things that, that I appreciate about, appreciate about you is like I said, you kind of worked in multiple places to see kind of where all the problems are and to see how those um how those institutions operate yeah you know how do we how where do we where do we put where do we put our attention at first that's the that's the trillion dollar question um as I've been thinking about this more and more I I tend to lean in the in the direction of saying that our our education our educational system whether it be public private parochial whatever it is that has to be the entry point and I say it's the entry point because you know if we if we touch every school system then we will inevitably touch the majority of our families. So we'll, we will be able to not only do an assessment of where the student is at, we'll be able to check the health of what the family or the institution, the sort of family makeup that they are coming from. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes we put all our focus on the student, on the, in, the, in the individual, but we don't recognize the fact that they are with their families 66% of, of, of each day. You know what I'm saying? So. Um, I, I tend to lean in the direction that our focus should be initiating and building relationships within our school systems to then, then make the assessment of what other additional services and supports need to be in place to make sure that these families can compete. Um, I think that that might be the most effective and efficient way. Like I was doing, I, I did work for so long working with kids who were gang involved. And what I found is that the majority of our services are sort of focused on the kid while they're gang involved. So like right in that middle section. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, that is really just like 
that's really band-aid work to be honest with you my brother like that that that's band-aid work that is that is to put a band-aid on it to try to stop the bleeding for the moment so the kid doesn't bleed out but the real work should happen while they're young in the family unit supporting that family or after the gang involvement what do we do to help them reintegrate into not only the community but also into the family as well checking on the health of the family in which the, in, in the community in which they are part of like that that has to be the main work our focus sort of building and supporting families and then if there are individuals who are um struggling or not where they should be how are we helping them to integrate back into the family and community and then helping to repair the damage that was caused by the absence? So that is a long answer of saying that I think education, our educational systems should be the entry point for service delivery and vocational services. Like if, if, a, if a third grader's mother and father have to work two jobs in order to live in Dorchester, despite their best efforts, they're not going to be able to be fully um, engaged in their, in their child's education. It's just, it's, just, it's just, they just don't have the bandwidth for it. Mm -hmm. So the focus should be, how are we helping to build the skill set of those parents so they, A, they can earn more wages, but B, that a higher wage, I should say, but B, that they can also be more, ingrained into the sort of their, their, their child's academic process as well, because then they will begin to feed off each other. Because not only are you, are the, are, are the parents elevating, the young person elevating as well. And I live by the idea that you have to see success in order to sort of be able to begin to chart out your own successful path. You have to see some successful opportunities and options in order for you to be able to um, really carve out a way in which to uh, a life that you want to live. What you're, what you're discussing sounds very similar to what I understand about the model that LeBron James is using with his school out in, in Ohio. Like that whole idea of being integrated through the entire family unit. Yeah, and, it, it, it's, it's not, it, it, it's, it's the Harlem children's home. It's, it, it's what LeBron's doing. It's, it's, it's what Black Wall Street was. It was, it was this idea that it's not simply about the individual. Individually, I'm going to be straight. I'll be good regardless, individually. But there's a brother my same age um, with the same schools I went to that in order for him to survive, he, he, he's working 18 hours a day. And his 16-year-old son is now flirting with gang activity. Mm -hmm. Like, what support systems do we have for him? Cause he's doing, he's, he's doing the best he can, but there's no system of support for parents that's not punitive. That's not gonna judge them mm -hmm. for um, trying to make a way or trying to find a way to support the kids. Because I haven't come across a parent that doesn't want better for their kids. They just sometimes just don't know how to because they're dealing with their own trauma as well. Well, I, I wonder if maybe part of the problem is our blind spot as a as a community as a society where i feel like people are more willing to invest in the thing they can see as opposed to the preventative piece of it because what you're talking about really is preventative it's it's understanding early on and let's pour these things in here 
so we don't get this outcome, as opposed to we've got this outcome, let's bring this person back around. Like we already see the problem. So we are we see the like it's almost like as if we need to see the problem in order to understand there's a problem. You know what I mean? And I wonder if if that's our blind sight, our blind um spot. Is it is it, is it I, I would argue that it's not a blind spot because we've seen the evidence for 40 years. We we we've seen the evidence of what happens. And I would argue that it it's it's more of a value judgment. It's more of who do mm. who do believe is worthy of investment. That's what I believe it comes down to. I I don't think it's a a sort of unintentional blind spot. I think we just I often said that the population that I worked with, black and brown boys, are the most devalued population in the nation. Like it they're they're if you're not deemed worthy to invest in, they'll make every excuse not to invest in you. And and which is which is which is counterintuitive because you're making a bigger investment later down the line. You're making a a larger investment because of 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 the sort of the sort of social impact of either incarceration or or or, or some other systemic sort of uh, uh, programming that you have to then give give to a family because they aren't able to be self 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 sustaining and self sufficient. So. I, bro, I, I've been, I just been racking my brain, just trying to figure out what, what it is, because I see it. I, I, I see, like you see every, every sort of few years, you see this next generation following down the same path of the generation before them. And I used to be heavy on, it's the system, it's the system, it's the system. And then I'll, you just say, yo, this, the system was not designed to save us. So it, it, the system is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. We have to do something different in our interactions with the system. But most importantly, you have to do something different in the way in which we've established culture and established social norms within our neighborhoods that can then force the system to give us whatever they give everybody else. So making sure that Roxbury gets everything that Hyde Park gets, that, that Cobb Square gets everything that 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 um, certain sections of, of West Roxbury get like that's that has to be the fight versus thinking that the system is going to come up with some grand design that will be the remedy to all that ails us. Yeah, I I, I wonder about how we get people to kind of re to approach um, this problem solving outside of the box because you're right, the evidence is there and it's listen. And as far as I can tell, it's cheaper to build a good school than it is a good prison. You know what I mean? The, the work and energy and the, and the, that goes into to, to doing that, I'd rather pour into a school. And then also from a business point of view, for me as a, you know, as a business owner, logic says that pouring into good school systems and things like that, all that does is give me a better pool of people to potentially be employees. You know what I mean? Everybody's not going to want to go off and start their own business. Some people are going to have, have a job. So why not create the better group of folks to choose from? Well, and then, then it's on me to make sure they choose me. Well, I would, I would, I would say that, that that was probably the thinking before we got to the 80s. And within the, I, I think, no, I'll say probably closer to the 90s. I think once once Boston became such a transient transplant city, 
there was less of an incentive to invest in the products of its institutions because you could just replace the workforce. If you can't find local kids in, in Jamaica playing who could be your workforce, you know that every year you got a group of college kids who are going to be here, who could in, who could then take those jobs. So there was the, the incentive to invest in creating a educated, well-skilled workforce began to dissipate once you knew that you can replace them or you knew that you could find you can just import them or you know or you knew that they could come come here from another city that you didn't have to invest in you, you could just get them to work for you you know what i'm saying so it's like it was it was it was once the system figured that out it's like okay like why they bring all the jobs and move them to southeast asia because okay we can get a whole new workforce that that instead of instead of us training and 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 and, and Sort of building a workforce here who could be the manufacturers or, 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 or to be the, the laborers. They said, okay, we could just ship those jobs overseas and we can sort of up our margins. So I, I feel like it was a sort of similar example here. We don't have to sort of be really vested in ensuring that we are creating this next generation of, of, uh, of tech folks if we know that we every year Northeast is going to get 15,000 international students who could then be our next pool. Of, of 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 employees so yeah so i mean i guess i guess the the question i still have is you know for you now you know i know that you're you've you've left the city you've been you've been gone from the city since december for you and you're also a new author you know tell tell us about your book and kind of what was the vision behind your, your book so the the vision behind the book was a sort of personal account from my dissertation. My dissertation was looking at the uh, lived experience of Roxbury parents as they sort of navigate through secondary schools, which is basically how parents, how how are parents from Roxbury interfacing with the school system around them? Like, how are they deciding which schools to go to? What, what like what what goes into them believing that? school A is a viable option versus school B. I was talking a little bit about the, the construction of BPS and how the desegregation uh, system uh, from, from, from Brown, Brown v. Board then led to um, busting and, de and desegregation of, of BPS and how that changed public education within, within the city of Boston, changing not only the demographics, but also changing the ways in which, again, back to those building skill set, like how does, we we once had a strong voc tech program. Once had sort of at one point, uh, Boston Technical High School was sort of creating the black middle class in terms of the the, the black police officers. Some of the folks who were going into the office building were coming from Boston Technical High School. Um, but then once they sort of changed the configuration of tech because of some other legislation, we sort of saw the black middle class begin to dissipate. So long story short, my my book that I just released was sort of my personal experience of what it was like to navigate through BPS while also talking a little bit about the history of Boston and what actually brought my family to the city and how they um, experienced some of the sort of watershed moments that happened within, within the city of Boston. I, I talk about it in a TED talk, like most of, most of Black Boston's sort of uh, family roots sort of started in the South and they were part of that sort of migration, migration North and, and what that was like leaving, leaving the Jim Crow South and then coming to the city of Boston for presumably more opportunities and then what they sort of encountered when they got here. And like my parents went through busing. 
um, you know what I'm saying? So it's like just sort of talk, talking about that. So that that was that was the point of the book, sort of to give my personal account from my the research I did that that, that helped me secure my doctorate. Yeah, I mean, listen, how how hard was it for you to kind of sit down and, and translate that that very broad, wide, and rich experience into the pages of that book? Because I that's a lot, you know. What I mean, that's a lot to kind of pull into into one little into a, a small space. What what I tried to do was not to not to feel like I had to tell the entire story in this. Mm -hmm. In, in this one run. So I sort of, I I started with a sort of background about my family, talked about some Boston, and I talked about my personal experience going from kindergarten to finally graduating high school and talking about some of the moments that led me to have the academic experience that I had. Like, like I mentioned earlier about sort of testing into the 99th percentile. And then how as a kid, you don't realize that they start tracking you from first grade. They, they, they're tracking for Boston's examination high school. Why at the time when I was in BPS, they began tracking uh, potential exam school students in first grade. So depending on those test scores, that depends on what classroom you're gonna go into. So from first grade to third grade, they're, they're, they're testing you to see where you're at in the percentile. And then if you test well enough, they're gonna put you in advanced work class in fourth grade. And advanced work class at the time, I was doing my research, 76% 70, of kids who were part of advanced work class went to examination high schools. So they were creating a sort of two-tier system of general education and then exam school education um, within BPS. And I was a part of those exam, exam room classrooms. So there'll be two fourth grade. You never, you never realize you were in the same classes with the same kids all the time, but there was a whole nother group of fourth graders that you never interfaced with. You didn't, you didn't understand it at the time, but as you got older, you were like, okay, everyone in your class are the kids that went to um, Latin, O'Brien, or Latin Academy. And then you get to, when you finally get to, when you finally get to your uh, your high school, exam school de destination, you start talking to the kids about what schools they went to, they all went to the same school. And you see how there was this separation. And unfortunately enough, like, that, that's part of the reason why we have such a divide in income within the city of Boston, because the way our school system was designed, if you were tracked towards exam school, um, we know we know the difference between somebody who goes to college in terms of some of the potential ways that they can earn versus somebody who might have a, gen a general equivalency or or high school diploma only. Like you start, you started to see what those gaps were, and our school system for so long helped to exacerbate and expand those gaps because the way in which they track folks. You know, like I know, like we have friends who were just as smart or smarter than us who didn't go to exam school, who didn't go to advanced, who weren't part of the advanced work class. And be, because of that, their sort of trajectory was different. And I talk about a friend in the book who, who could have gone to advanced work class, but at the time, Roxbury didn't offer advanced work class in elementary school, which is a sort of remnants of what busing was. The point of busing was they wanted to put black kids in Roxbury in white spaces. So they wanted to take them out of schools in order to get opportunities. So in order to access advanced work class, I had to go to a school outside of Roxbury, which was in Roswell, which was the Bates. Um, so I had a friend who could have went to the Bates as well, but he already had a sibling that went to elementary school too. And he was responsible for walking his little brother home. Mm -hmm. Mom wasn't gonna take, was gonna have to take that trip from Rockville and Roxbury to get to get kids home. So he's like, no, you're just gonna say, not knowing that that one academic decision 
change his academic trajectory. Like that one small decision. And, and I think many of our parents just weren't aware of how significant or how, how significant, but also how sort of detrimental that testing process was. And particularly if you didn't go through that process yourself or if you still had your own um, negative experiences. One of the things I found like depending on the parents' experience as they went to school, that, that's what dictated how much they interface with their child's school. So if they had sort of traumatic incidences, it was really difficult for them to interface with whether it be teachers or with the administration. And oftentimes, like if that if that's trauma that's not addressed or not even acknowledged, because that's that, that's a subconscious thing. That's not something that they were overtly doing. That was sort of subconscious that came out during the conversation. But it, it, it was a lot, man. It was a lot. So that was my research. And I wanted to bring my personal account, my personal story to that to sort of show as an example um, how, how critical, but also like how detrimental the sort of structure of our public school system was and how it sort of left a lot of sort of students um, behind. Yeah, and this is an incredible, incredible piece in my life and times by Dr. Rufus J. Falk. Um, I would advise you all to go check it out if you get the opportunity. But it's interesting as we talk about that educational experience and it also lets me think about how when we talk about the city and the personality of the city, those circles of your educational experience kind of inform your social circles, which informs your financial circles, you know what I mean? Because like you said, the kids who went to Latin school together or went to, to um, Latin Academy together, they ended up working together later on and they go to the same colleges and yeah. we're very much a relationship. Who all is going to be there? Who do you know? You know what I mean? And there's only a few people that I think, and I, and I feel like you're one of those folks that kind of translates and, and operates in various sections of the city. So I could, I could one day see you um, up at Franklin Park at Bams Fest, but then a, a, another day I may see you um, I may see you around the way, you know what I mean? I can, I can see you operating in all these different spaces. And I think that, you know, that's something that more people that, I think that's one of our, the things that we do as Bostonians, we stay very parochial and kind of our view of who we connect with and interact with. And that going back to our conversation about the recognizing the power in different communities, because like, yeah, you're right. If, if we collectively knew about the power of, of, of the Haitian revolution, and how that was connected to us. If we knew about how, you know, some of the things that were going on here in America informed the things that were going on in the Caribbean and even the music and the things that, you know what I mean? And how it's all full circle, like it all swings back around with Cool Herc and his sister, you know, being the foundation for hip hop. So it's like, we, we don't realize that we're our own, you know, our own best asset sometimes. Yeah, we, we, we have to get out of that deficit mindset, man. We got to get out of that and recognize that everything we need, we already have. Everything we need to succeed, everything we need to move forward and move the community forward, we already possess. It's just, it's about doing the hard, intentional work of putting all, putting it together. And I think I think the expert, it's sort of similar, you know how we, we always hear it like, oh, Boston ain't like whatever city, you know, import whatever city. Fill in the blank. Exactly. But we don't want to put in the work to make to make Boston be whatever we want it to be. You understand? Like we, we expect it to come ready made, but Boston ain't a city for that. 
you got you got to build what you want. If you build it, folks will come. Man. You know what I'm saying? Feel the yeah. dreams. Man. You got to build it. You got to build it. But that that's hard, difficult work. That's sometimes thankless work. And it, it it's very rare you find individuals willing to commit to thankless work because we want we want pats on the back. We want no. We want you want to see the fruits of your labor, but. If you really want to build a system or structure, you might not see the benefit from it. And that's a tough reality. Very true. And I think, you know, we always talk about that and about that work and kind of putting your head, going back to what we were saying earlier about putting your head down and kind of just and operating. And, you know, I look at any of the work and I look at just any of the work of the, the people that I know that are out there kind of contributing, like you're contributing for people that, you know, that for or for instances that you may never experience you know what i mean the work that we're doing today is not really for us it's not going to turn around that quick it's not going to be that easy yeah. we're doing this for our grandkids yeah. grandkids yeah. you know what i mean and, and if we have that seven generation thinking i think that we're 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 much better off with that so i i i you know that is that's the kind of driver for us that's why i encourage I encourage folks to do, excuse me, to do, if they can, do that genealogy and ancestry work in terms of census data, finding out about your grandparents, your great-grandparents, their parents, because it, it not only, how to say it, how to phrase it, so it, it sort of, it gives you a level of context for what it's like to sacrifice without knowing what's gonna be up ahead, yo. To just to just run through the tunnel without seeing daylight. Like you don't even know you're going in the right direction, but you know that you gotta run because it's just it's your duty to do your part and or and 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 to do some level of work in order for because you, it might not even be your your leg of the race to see daylight, cause which is the craziest part. What what, what if your job is to only run in the dark, just mm. just long enough to get to the next handoff? So that they may be able to see a little bit of daylight. So like when you do that ancestry work, bro, you see like I I was able to see like I, I was able to go back to 1785 on my dad's side, 1811 on my mom's side. Wow. And you think about what it's like to be born in 1785 in Virginia, right? And you go eight generations later, and your 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 direct line is somebody who was able to get say conservatively 20 more years of education that you ever had access to was able to earn a thousand times more than you ever held was able to do things that you were never able to do and you would never see it in the physical like you wouldn't even it wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be conceivable conceivable to you in the physical like so I, I just think if you if you do that level of personal, like we tell we tell kids we want you to study history, but I always say, yo, study your family's history first because that's black and American history. Start there. And then that'll give you context. And that'll make you view what your duty is for the next or what your duty is to the next generation even, even, even more clearer. So I, I try to encourage folks, man, do the genealogy work, do the ancestry work, bro. And you see folks who were born at a time when their options were super limited, yet they still put their head down and, made, and, and paved the way. Again, they weren't perfect, 
Nobody could be. We ain't. But they paved the way that allows you to be here today, yo. And you have to do the same for the preceding generation. So, um, following generation. So, yeah, man. That that that'll just be my. That's what I, that's what I try to give to every. Whenever I try to talk to folks about history or about duty, I say, yo, doing my own family history really, really sort of cemented this idea about sacrificing and not sacrificing because you see the win ahead, but just sacrificing because that's your role to play. I mean, that that idea of being a part of that long-standing legacy is, is super important. And I think that it's something we, you're right, we all should be really kind of calibrating ourselves to really look at the world from that lens. Um, but in speaking of that legacy, let's talk about today. What you know, what are some of the things that you're working on today? Like, like I said, we already got your your first book. Yeah. Now, what's what's next for for Doctor Falk? So part part of the reason why I left, um, I actually left in I left in February. Part of the reason why I left was because I just felt burnt out, yo. I felt like I felt like the effort I was putting out. Um, I just felt like my battery was never charged back up to 100. I felt like I could never even get my battery back up to like 80%. You know, I would, it was, it felt draining and a, partly felt like that because of sort of high intensity, sort of highly traumatic work around gun and gang violence. Like that was sort of my focus. And regardless of a good day or a good week that you might have, the moment one incident occurs or reoccurs, you sort of flash back to the first time you lost a young person or the first time you heard a gunshot. So it was it was very like a cyclical, it's almost like I was re-traumatizing myself after every every incident. And one of the one, one of the lessons I was taught is that, yo, you can't pour from an empty cup, man. If you are empty, but you're still trying to be all things to all people, you're not only gonna, be no good to the people you're serving, you're gonna be no good to yourself. So a lot of a lot of the things I've been doing since 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 I left was just really taking time to really recharge myself and and really figure out how I want to be impactful. Because to be honest, I, I I can't do the same things and I don't want to do the same things I did when I was 25 in terms of trying to have impact and trying to be everywhere and trying to do everything. As, as, as I've gotten older saying, okay, I want to still be impactful, but in, impactful in a way in which where I can help that next generation of service providers or that, those next generation of leaders to be, the, to be the, 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 the wise sage in the background who can offer some level of support and make some connections and make some networks and maybe lend some of the sort of lived experience, both professionally and personal, that can sort of help someone not to trip up against the same obstacles that I've had. So really, really what's next for me, bro, is really just trying to really solidify what does, what does, and really define what does impact look for, look like for me for the next 10 years? Because um, I know that I, I'm not built to do the high impact stuff as much as I, I used to be able to, but I still want to, by high impact, I'm talking about like, impact on your body and on your mind and on your spirit and on your soul. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have it in me anymore. I like I I tear up watching cartoon movies with my daughter, man, because of of, of you know what I'm saying of, of the sort of the different point I'm at in my life now. So um 
yeah, really for me, it's really just trying to really solidify what does the next 10 years impact look like for me? Um, and I know it's, it, it's more about connecting with families and connecting with communities, I think, and really trying to connect them to direct services, supports that can um, sort of change their quality of life and also begin to not only change the quality of life within their household, begin to change the quality of life within the communities in which they live in. So that that's sort of where where my mind has sort of been taking me, my spirit's been taking me lately. Well, I think that, you know, not to put more on your plate, but I definitely think the the prospect of doing another book should be one of those things you might want to consider in, in, your, in your, your chapter. I think you have an incredible story in terms of the, the, the places and spaces that you've been in. And I think there's even more um, combined with the education that you've gotten along the way, whether it's academic education or uh, lived experience. I think the idea of putting that in, into uh, you know into a book again is definitely worthy. You know, I'm I'm always rooting for the writer, so I'm always for that. I think that, <laughs> I think that's something that, a space that you 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 can easily flourish in. And I definitely see we need a we need a TED talk too. I don't know. I might have to come out and be like, well, I can't. Yeah, I was gonna see you got me on. Um, what you call it? You, you said I'm from Bobby Brown, Boston. I can't come out and be like I'm from Jordan Knight, Boston. You know, yeah, you know. It, which also gets to the point where it is it's different. It's levels, fam. See, this is and this is why I, but that's why I said it because I know you. Marky Mark, Boston. Go ahead, cuz tell see, me. See, that's what I'm talking about. We can't. This, we had a nice conversation. Where we helped illuminate some things for the people. You know what I mean? You dragged it. You you dragging them into this foolishness. I'm just making sure things are oriented correctly, fam. <laughs> we, know, we know who we know who's the heart of the city, fam. We know that. We all, Here we go. We all, we all, come on, everybody knows this. Come on, man. We know. Uh, it is geographically the center of the city. And what else? Go ahead. That's it. That's geographically it. it. We are the cultural. We are the we we are the culture, man. We know that. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Well, the only thing that Roxbury and Deutsches uh, agrees on is that Man of Pan ain't hitting. So I think, <laughs> I think that's that. I think that's we can we can leave on that note. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm joking to all my friends in Man of Pan. I'm playing. Don't do, my, don't do my folks in the pan like that, man. You was laughing because you agreed. So don't don't try to make it seem like I'm alone. Listen, folks, I appreciate uh, appreciate you listening. And Dr. Falk, thank you so much for joining us today, man. I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you again. But before we let you go, I actually have a, a question for you. Yes, sir. Who do you think we should talk to next? Mm. When you're thinking about people from the city that are, you know, key people that we need to, um, that we need to connect to, that they have a great story about the good trouble that they've, they've gotten into, who should we talk to next? Wow, that is a great question. Mm. Wow, I got a thousand names. Who should you see? I also got to see who you've already spoken to as well. Well, we've had some great conversations. We talked to Catherine Morris. We talked to Shigun Idawu. We yeah. talked to Janae Osterhelm. Like, I feel like we have a, when you look at our, our previous episodes, we got a pretty good snapshot. Is there, a, is, is there a demographic that you have not yet touched, whether it be whether it be ethically, whether it be language, whether it be experience, whether it be profession, is there is there something that you haven't gotten to? I think there, I think we're wide open in terms of uh, in terms of that. So I think that 
you know, we have a relatively uh, short run of episodes. Yeah. So I think that we're, we're kind of open to a lot of different people. Like, you know, I've had conversations with Kareem uh, Reynolds from, from who's a new night, nightlife czar. You know, I've talked to artists in terms of we've had conversations with Amandi Music. So we've had, you know, a good snapshot of, of people. We know talk to Real P, who yeah. are, you know, who's super important to the culture here in the city. So you think of, think of somebody that you think spoke to, that... Spoke to, I, I, you didn't mention his name, but do you, have, you, have you done more with, with pro-black? No, I have not spoken to pro-black yet. Black might black might be the might might be the next person. I think pro black would be a dope episode, and particularly talking about sort of being who who the arbiters of culture here. Um, he's the preeminent artist in the city. Okay, I think that could be a dope combo. What it's like, and 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 sort of what 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 messages he's he's conveying, and how he's sort of changing the look, not only like aesthetically, but he's like he's changing the look of Boston. The built space, yeah, that'd be dope. Okay, all right. Oh, we'll, we'll take that on your recommendation. I will. I will reach out to Mister Gibbs and and let him know that you. Is you, he from too? Huh? Is he from? Uh Boston. No, no, no. He's from Roxbury. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, ladies and gentlemen, this this rivalry will not be resolved anytime soon. Um. But those of you who are, want to be on the right side of history will stand with us in Dorchester. Um, so well, thank you very much. Thank you, bro. Always a pleasure, man. Appreciate what you got, what you're doing, man. Love what you guys are doing. Continue to be unapologetic, man. Continue to speak truth to power, man. I, it, it's, it's necessary. And what I would just encourage is like, don't be, don't be hesitant to touch subjects that you think might be controversial because that that's where the real growth's gonna happen. So absolutely. And, and I definitely will be circling back because when, when I do a round table or one of those things, I'm definitely gonna pull you into the mix. Cause I actually feel like there is a conversation to be had about the uh intergenerational piece and in um within the community, the intra-community piece, you know, as well. In terms of uh, in terms of the community of Boston, the Black community of Boston. So, but I do want to thank you so much for being a part of being a part of Good Trouble. And ladies and gentlemen, we will talk to you again soon. Um, stay well and take care of yourselves. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Good Trouble.